three weeks ago, I had a, an afternoon meeting with Jared and Nathan, and we do that pretty regularly, just kind of check in. And three weeks ago, we, I was able to share with them, like with full sincerity, guys, I'm just doing great. Like I am abiding, like I'm nailing it. I'm so excited to preach in three weeks about just all, with all the wisdom and the knowledge that I have and that God's given me. <clears throat> and then one week later, I sit down with Jared having a different conversation and he goes, hey, like, how are you doing? I know last week was going great. How are you today? And again, with full sincerity, tears just held back. It was, Jared, like, I just feel empty. I feel fragile. I feel like I'm an imposter. I'm overwhelmed by work. I'm overwhelmed with home life. Like, I just don't know what's going on. And I've had to ask, like, what is going on? Am I going crazy? Is there something, is there a problem? Like, what is occurring? Did I just get a few bad nights of sleep? Now, it's clear to me as I, I look back, like the problem is rooted in my abiding. Um, so today we are looking at abiding through the lens of prayer. Um, and I'm gonna draw very heavily on a book called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Many of you guys have read this before. And the reason I'm drawing on it so heavily is because like, I know how to pray. I've, I've prayed for a long time. I've taught on prayer, and yet there was something deeply wrong with my prayer life. And this book has helped defibrillate it, right? You know when someone has a heart attack and they like, clear, poof! Like, that's what I needed. Like, my heart was going wrong, and I needed something to go poof and shock me. Now, my hope is to kind of carry you guys along with some of the things that have been most needed in my soul as a way of like stepping towards honesty, where we as a church community are not afraid of frankness and honesty, where it says, man, something's wrong in me. My spirituality is off. Like this is a place of safety and brotherhood and sisterhood where everything is left on the table. Now, what went wrong? I'd like to read uh, the introduction out of, or excuse me, the introduction out of this book. Um, it's actually, the introduction is written by a man named David Paulison, but here's how he goes, or here's what he says. He says, it is hard to pray. It's hard enough for many of us to make an honest request to a friend that we trust for something that we truly need. But then when that request gets labeled praying and your friend is termed God, things often get very tangled up. Now, you've heard the formulaic phrases, the meaningless repetition, the vague non-requests, the pious tones of voice, and the general air of confusion. If you talk to your friends and family that way, that way they would think you had lost your mind but you've probably talked to God that way. And you've known people who treat prayer like a rabbit's foot to ward off bad luck or bringing goodies. You've known people who feel guilty because their quantity of prayer fails to meet some presumed standard. And maybe you are one of those people. Now prayer, it tends to become a production and a problem. Life is a production and a problem. Now God, he's there somewhere sometimes. But prayer is not meant to be a production nor a problem, and God is here now. So prayer is meant to be the conversation where your life and your God meet. A praying life is an oddly normal way to live. The best that our world has to offer is to teach you how to talk to yourself, but Jesus lives and teaches something different. What he does and what he helps you do is unfamiliar, but normal. He teaches you how to stop talking to yourself and how to stop making prayer a production. 
Now, ultimately, as I look back at, at my heart over the last two to three months and probably beyond that, prayer was a production and a task. It was something I had to do to get results and not necessarily just prayer results of like answered prayer, right? But like, I need to be an integrous person. Therefore, I must pray. I want to be a godly person. Therefore, I must pray. There's a result that I want, so I better put in the hours. And I'm also pursuing ultimately um, spiritual experiences. Prayer is more meaningful or more good when I get the tinglies or I walk away with the warm fuzzies, whatever it is, when God was near, right? I also approach prayer with like, I know I should, but I'm probably fine if I just miss a day or two. It really doesn't make that big of a difference. And what that created in me was turbulent spirituality with huge fluctuations between peace and panic. One week, man, I'm just abiding so good. The next week, I'm like, I'm a ship at sea. Turbulent spirituality. So for us today is, does Jesus, as a teacher, does he offer a better vision of prayer and dependence on God than what I and what we have experienced? Jesus says this in John 15, verse seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And by this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. So abide, remain in my love. So we are on a, a series all about abide, and today we are looking at depend on or in prayer. And here's where we're going, because today is all about dependent, needy prayer. And it is Jesus's vision of prayer that we're considering today. And we, as followers of him, we are going to accept him as a teacher and accept, or at least try to accept his vision. So we have seven points today. Um, again, all of these are far more than information. In many ways, this is me trying to um, share my journey with you. These are the things that I needed that have made, that have brought me life. So point number one is that we pray to our Father. Two, we pray with freedom. Three, that we do focus at specific times. Four, that our abiding proves our faithfulness. Five, that we ask without fear. Six, that there's a single path to fruitfulness. And seven, that there is a final step and it is reciprocation. Don't worry, you don't have to write that down. We'll be going through this. Number one, we pray to our Father. Again, prayer is not just a task that we have to do. Prayer is a conversation with a person a person who specifically calls himself our father. Jesus himself describes God as our father in John 20. He says, he's talking to Mary. He says, Mary, go to my brothers and sisters and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father. I'm ascending to my God and your God. And then Paul really explicitly in Romans says, you have received the spirit of adoption. You've been brought into the family as sons and daughters. And this spirit of adoption makes us cry, Abba, Dad, Father. Now, you know that I know that you know that we've all heard that a thousand times. <laughs> but let me read this to you out of Paul Miller's book. He says, let's imagine that you see a prayer therapist 
to get your prayer life straightened out. The therapist says, hey, let's begin looking at your relationship with your heavenly father. What does it mean that you are a son or a daughter of God? Well, you reply that, oh, it means that I have complete access to my heavenly father through Jesus. I have true intimacy, not based on how good I am, but on the goodness of Jesus. But not only that, Jesus is my brother. I'm a fellow heir with him. Your therapist smiles and says, that's right. You've done a wonderful job describing the doctrine of sonship. Now, tell me, What's it like for you to be with your father? What's it like to talk with him? Now you cautiously tell the therapist how difficult it is to be in your father's presence even for a few minutes. Your mind wanders and you're not sure what to say. You wonder, does prayer make any difference? Is God even there? And then you feel guilty for your doubts and just give up. And your therapist tells you what you already suspect. Your relationship with your heavenly father is dysfunctional. You talk as if you have an intimate relationship, but you don't. Theoretically, it is close, but practically it's distant and you need help. I need help. I need a heart recalibration because I know the doctrine and the language of adoption, but I often forget to see God as a person. And it's easy to view task or prayer as a task and then evaluate my time based on my experiences or feeling. Was it a good experience? But that thinking is damaging because you don't aim to experience people. If you do, that's called consumerism and using people. What you do in a healthy relationship is you get to know them. And once we begin hunting for a certain kind of experience with God or a certain feeling in prayer, we ultimately lose him. Miller says, oddly enough, many people struggle to learn how to pray because they're focusing on praying, not on God. Prayer is not the center of this book. Getting to know a person God, that is the center. So we do not experience God, though he is an experiential God, we get to know him. So when God says he is our father, he's wanting us to trust us that he actually loves us like his own children. He is a father and a person. But because we are children of this father, that brings us to our second point, that we pray with freedom because we are children. In uh, Mark chapter 10, Jesus is speaking and he says, quote, let the children come to me, do not hinder them for to such, to these children belongs the kingdom of God. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now, it is really easy to over-romanticize children. (laughs) And we can take this teaching in weird directions, but one very clear and gospel-centered understanding is that we come to the Father with the freedom of our whole selves, with our real selves, open-hearted, mess and all, because God's fatherly heart is not saying, Just stay over here until you get polished up. Could you please wipe the snot from your nose, get it together, and then come to me? 
Fathers embrace their children in their arms. Snot, spit up, screams, all of it. Fathers embrace their children as they are because fathers are more interested in knowing their children than getting their children to perform. Fathers love their children. Miller says this, quote, many attempts to teach people to pray encourage the creation of a split personality where you're taught to do it right. Instead of the real and messy you meeting God, you and we try to recreate ourselves by becoming spiritual. So no wonder prayer is unsatisfying. Instead of being paralyzed by who you are, begin with who you are, because that is how the gospel works. God begins with you, but it's a little scary because you are messed up. But the real you has to meet the real God. And on, on my recalibrating journey, this has allowed me open and heart level connection with a God who I know embraces me. And that embrace becomes and has become a place of freedom where the, the presence of my father is a place of relief. It's a place where I don't need to hide my neediness nor my mess. Because I'm realizing that I am driven by performance often. But this depth of presence, this sense of safety and peace is cultivated over time. It doesn't happen by accident, which leads us to our third point, that we focus at specific times. Jesus, again, in verse five says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, again, if we accept Jesus as a teacher, it's pretty clear that he's saying that our soul level flourishing requires ongoing, regular, and heart level connection with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I've been married long enough to know when Whitney and I have slipped into roommate mode. You guys know what that is? That's, that's when relationally we begin withering on the vine in the language of John 15. So without heart level connection, we become business partners and we no longer are lovers. And so heart level connection for us in a human relationship requires time for our hearts to come out and it requires date nights. It requires focused time. Parker Palmer wrote a book called Hidden Wholeness and he says this, the soul is like a wild animal. It is tough, resilient, savvy, self-sufficient, and yet it is exceedingly shy. Now, if we want to see a wild animal, the last thing that we should do is go crashing through the woods, shouting for the creature to come out. But if we are willing to walk quietly in the woods and sit silently for an hour or two at the base of a tree, the creature we're waiting for may well emerge. And your soul is like that. When we hunt for intimacy, we kill it. But when we make room for it, it emerges. And we cannot know ourselves, nor can we know God through impatience. So we need time and space to be together, whether that's husband and wife or God and child. But this is challenging. Incredibly so. Uh, Paul Miller even has a, a section where he addresses this. He says, 
especially in an average average schedule. He says, American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We're so busy that when we slow down, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments, production, but prayer is nothing more or nothing but taking time, talking to God. It feels useless as if we're wasting time. And when we aren't working, we're used to being entertained. So free time is as busy as work. So when we do slow down, we slip into a stupor. Exhausted by the pace of our life, we veg out in front of a screen or with earplugs. And if we do try to be quiet, we're assaulted by what C.S. Lewis called the kingdom of noise. So everywhere we go, we hear background noise. But if that noise is not provided for us, we can even bring our own via iPod. But even our church services can have that same restless energy. There's little space to be still before God. We want our money's worth. So something should always be happening. We are uncomfortable with silence. If I speak bluntly, to abide, to truly abide, we need to be willing to be unentertained. Now my unhelpful morning rhythm which landed me what we talked about three weeks ago. My unhelpful morning rhythm went something like this. I would wake up and spend five minutes, before doing anything, spend five minutes in bed in prayer. Now, that sounds spiritual, and I guess it is better than nothing. (laughs) But my very next step would be in my boxers, like walk into the kitchen, grab the cell phone, put on a podcast. And that noise of that podcast would follow me into the shower, getting dressed, cooking breakfast, packing lunch, shutting the front door. That same noise would follow me as I drive to work, walk up the stairs, put my backpack down. I land in the office chair, hit pause, and wonder, why do I feel so restless and ill-prepared? So there's a reason that Jesus regularly went to the quiet places. And if he needed it, so do we. And a common Christian tradition has been to start the day with a focused time of scripture and prayer. And we've heard it a thousand times, but it's for a reason. Because it sets the tone for the whole day. Now, for me, even when I do get that, if I'm being honest, even when I do get 15 to 30 minutes, whatever that is, that morning peace can really quickly get washed away in a flurry of activity, unless I continue to push back throughout the day. So I have adopted this simple rhythm of prayer, and I've been trying to do this for a couple months, and I've finally implemented it strictly or more strictly the last few weeks. Now, this in Christian tradition is called the daily offices. And there's a bunch of different ways to do it, but um, the way that I've been experimenting with it simply means this. At six o'clock in the morning, at nine o'clock at night, at 12 o'clock at lunch, three in the afternoon, six at night, and then nine before bed, I spend time in prayer. It sounds really fancy, but it's really simple. Follow me with this. So when I, uh, six o'clock for me doesn't actually mean six o'clock. It just means first thing. When I get up, the first thing I do is spend time in prayer, 20 to 30 minutes of focused time, creating quiet and space for my soul to emerge and be in the presence of God. Then at nine o'clock, I'm at work. I've been there for about an hour. I just check in. I do a breath prayer. Father, here I am. Is there anything you want to draw my attention to? And then I keep going. At 12 o'clock, I use lunch as a mini reset, five to 10 minutes. 
at three. I've got two hours left in the workday. Again, Father, I'm here. Is there anything you need to draw my attention to? Would you be with me? At six o'clock, I arrive home and I again, Father, I'm coming home. Help me. I'm here. At nine o'clock is the end of the day and I spend a few minutes in reflection, with gratitude. Father, thank you for this. Thank you for this. Thank you for being here. Thank you for this. And then requests for the day ahead. Now your schedule will be different, but I think that what Jesus is saying in John 15 is that every soul needs at minimum a breath prayer. Father, at least two to three hours a day, every two to three hours a day. Now, if we're talking about focused prayer, again, having lots and lots of flexibility, a few practicals for focused prayer. Number one, I just learned this from Jared with the turn of the new year. It's pretty helpful. Just get to the start. Uh, the example with this is like, if you're trying to go to the gym and you wake up in the morning and you're, you're thinking, okay, I got to get up and I got to pack the lunch and I got to do this. And then I've got to figure out my workout and then I've got to get there. And what am I going to do when? It's really overwhelming. But if your goal is to work out more and your first bit of your attention in the morning is just, my goal is to get in the car. All I'm shooting for is to get in the car. Because once you're in the car, like the rest will take care of itself. You'll get there, you'll work out, it'll be fine. But if you just try to get in the car. And for us in prayer, it's something similar. When you wake up in the morning, if you want first thing in the morning, grab a cup of coffee and spend time in prayer. Just focus on getting to the chair or the floor, whatever you do, just get there. God, I'm just going to focus on getting there. Would you meet me? And have your reading plan or you're praying the Psalms, whatever that is, have it picked out ahead of time. But I guarantee you, if you just get there and open your Bible, something good will happen. Now with that, practical number two is just pray out loud. For me this morning, I'm on the floor praying and praying out loud does a couple things. One, it keeps your mind from wandering. It, it keeps you centered. Um, number two, it's really humbling when you hear your own heart. For me, I'm, I'm praying about this morning and, and the teaching I'm about to give. And, and Father, if I'm honest with you right now, I want to look really good today. You know what? I want to look more than good. I think I know people at church like me, but I want them to be amazed by me. If I'm being really honest, I don't just want to be amazing. Like, I want people to grovel. And that's the dark place that my heart is truthful. And when I hear myself say it out loud, I want to cry and I'm brought to humility before Jesus Christ and saying, God, I do need you. This isn't just, I gotta get some prayer time in. This is, this is the real stuff of my heart and I need you. And so when you hear your own heart out loud, it's scary, but it actually brings you into grace. Practical number three is this cool thing I've learned just called never miss two. Don't worry about a perfect streak. You can miss one, but don't miss two. Notice here in the middle, right? You've got a bad day. Okay, I got to hit it next day. And if I miss another one, okay, but don't miss two. It'll help you keep that little internal boost or like attention going. Now, one final comment. This is pretty personal, but it might help you. Um, for me, I realized at a practical level, podcasts needed to be way ratcheted back. Way ratcheted back for me. And so an easy compromise, because I love podcasts. I love learning. I love like hearing cool stories. I've just started spending the first half of my morning without them. 
So I get up, spend some time in prayer, and before I jump straight from prayer to podcast, I just take a shower and I get dressed and I start cooking breakfast. And that for me has become working prayer, where it's still silent, I'm using my body, I'm moving my day forward, but I'm, I'm actively praying and worshiping and being with God. And then around breakfast, I'll throw in a podcast and enjoy it, and it's great. Now, prayer and our regular need for prayer, and even like I shared with you, like praying out loud, it brings us to humility. Ultimately, praying, this is our fourth point, prayer proves faithfulness. You praying proves faithfulness. Again, in Jesus in John 15, verse five, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In three words, Jesus is saying, you need me. And so when we pray, we are admitting dependence. We're saying, yeah, I do need you. You don't ask someone for something that you don't need. And so when we pray, we're actually aligning ourselves with the teachings of Jesus that says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And if that is true, then you and I cannot do anything of spiritual fruitfulness unless we abide in him. So prayer is acknowledging need and it is extending trust in our Father. Miller, again, quoting, he says, we received Jesus because we were weak. And that's how we continue to follow him. Helplessness is how the Christian life works. Prayer mirrors the gospel because in the gospel, the Father takes us as we are because of Jesus, and then he gives us gifts of salvation. Now, we in prayer look at the inadequacy of our praying and we give up and we think something is wrong with us, but God looks at the adequacy of his son and then he delights in our sloppy and our meandering prayers. And so when you and I continue to pray while you're feeling sloppy, while you feel adequate, while you feel ineffective, that is actually a radical act of faith. God, I'm not feeling it. I don't feel like I deserve it, but I trust you. Praying is a radical act of faith. And a faithful acceptance of Jesus's words means that we don't mature out of needing Christ. The Christian life is not maturing out of needing Christ. As mature disciples, we don't become more independent. We actually become more dependent because we become more aware of what we're really like and aware of our weaknesses. But the gospel uses our weakness as a door to the grace of God. And so strong, strong Christians do pray a lot, but it's because they realize how weak they are and they realize their true dependence on God. In Jesus's words, you can do nothing without me. Now, one of, quick sidebar here, one of the, um, greatest gifts that can build a life-giving dependence on Christ is anxiety. Yep, I just said that anxiety can be a gift. So anxiety is rooted in fear. Um, it could be fear of the future, it could be vague fear, acute fear, constant fear, spiking fear, whatever it is. But anxiousness and fear don't have to be suppressed and pretended away, nor do they have to be smothered with pleasure. 
Anxiety and fear can actually turn our hearts towards God actively. It's where we feel our need and our dependence, and then they springboard us to continuous, needy, and fearful prayer. That's also called abiding. And it is an act of faithfulness. Our fifth point is that we ask without fear. Um, Jesus here, he makes two huge promises in John 15. The first one is in verse seven. The second one is in verse 16. He says this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. In verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. Clearly, Jesus is telling his followers to ask. Now, I have fear. I have fear of asking for the wrong things in prayer because if my heart and my prayers are not in line with the Father, does that prove that I'm somehow a bad person or a bad Christian? But then the flip side of that is I actually have fear of asking for the right thing because what if I ask for the right thing and then it doesn't happen? So am I now, like my unanswered prayer, does that like just make me even more doubtful of this whole Jesus thing? And all of those fears mixed up paralyze me. Fear of praying for the wrong thing, fear of praying for the right thing, they paralyze me. But the life of Jesus teaches us yet again that the Father, he's chasing heart level connection, not performance. He's not even chasing for you to pray for the right thing. I'm not suggesting we don't pursue obedience, we don't pursue faithfulness or Christlikeness. That's not what I'm suggesting. But look at this from the life of Jesus. Matthew 26, verse 39. Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be crucified and he's alone with his father. And he says, my father, if it be possible, would you let this cup pass from me? But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now I bring this up because notice what's occurring here. Jesus has already told his disciples he's going to be crucified. He's already told him, I will be crucified. He already knows God's plan and will. But then in this prayer, he asks what seems to be against God's plan. He says, Father, let this cup pass from me. Now, if Jesus is a robot, this prayer makes zero sense because computationally, he already knows God's plan. In three days, I will be crucified. In three days, I will rise. He knows God's plan. He knows his place. He knows his role. He already desires to do the will of the Father. So two plus two equals four. So computationally, there is no reason for Jesus to pray in this situation in the first place. But what does he do? He's modeling for us what Paul Miller calls desire and surrender. Desire is a willingness to fully express his own desires while fully submitting to his father. So desire and surrender means if you're on the Titanic and you're going down, you pray your full desire. Jesus, get me a spot on a lifeboat, please. Surrender means you then help everyone else onto a lifeboat. It's possible 
for a person to submit so quickly to the will of God that their own personhood never emerges. What that means is I assume I know what God wants and I assume he doesn't care about what I want. So I'm just gonna say nothing. But Jesus is not a robot and neither are you. And so even Jesus in his submission is a person. He says, God, I'm afraid to take this from me, but I'm also gonna do your will, no doubt about that. Here's what I desire and I'm willing to surrender. And so for you and I, God is wanting us to express ourselves because he wants to know our hearts. But what do we do with Jesus's extravagant promises? Ask whatever you want, it will be done for you. Uh, we just simply right now don't have the time to really plumb this, uh, the depths of this. And I don't personally fully understand it. It is a mystery in many ways, but here are a few faithful and traditional ways of understanding prayer. Um, so first, uh, Jesus again says, if you abide in me and my words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then he again says, whatever you ask in, ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So the fine print here in Jesus's words seems to be saying, number one, if you have an unanswered prayer, you didn't abide well enough, long enough. Now that sounds really harsh and I'm not trying to create a, a sense of performance in you, but if you have a non-Christian praying to God, is he as likely to answer that than someone who is praying in his name? I think that's something to wrestle with, but it would seem that a Christian praying for the wrong thing with no, or excuse me, a non-Christian praying for the wrong thing with no relationship, it's just like words into the air. But if you are abiding in him, it would seem that your words have a special place in his ear because you are his child. It does not mean God does not care for the unchristian. I'm not saying that. Number two, it would seem that it's saying that um, you must not have asked in his name, whatever that means. Now, James in uh, his letter in the New Testament, James chapter four, says something similar. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So similarly, there's kind of two things going on here. One is you're not getting answered prayers because you're just not asking. You assume you know what God wants. You assume he doesn't care what you want. So you just don't ask. Number two is, uh, James is saying, you ask wrongly. You're just asking for the wrong thing. Now, uh, Paul Miller has this cool graphic, which I'll put on the screen here. And again, we're not gonna truly go into all the depths, but this is a really helpful way for us to consider prayer. Again, knowing this is not based on performance. The Father wants to know your heart and he will shape you over time. But it seems that both Jesus and James, Jesus's brother, are saying something like this. It's possible to fall into the ditch of not asking, which is ultimately because we believe we're just separate from God. He doesn't really care. It's also possible to fall into the ditch of asking selfishly or asking for the wrong things. Not your will, Father, but my will be done. What this is, is we are demanding of God to fulfill all of our desires. God is subservient to us and he's there to lift us up. And then the middle ground would be, Father, I'm asking for your will with the full expression of my humanity. I'm willing to express myself in safety, but I'm also 
I'm willing to express my desires while submitting to your will. I acknowledge that you are above me and I come honestly, not as a robot, but honestly. But what do we then do with the middle path? If you're asking good prayers, reverently for the right things, all that, again, what do we do with unanswered prayer? Again, we don't have a ton of time and I still have a ton of mystery around it, but one helpful uh, graphic is this. And again, this comes from Miller's book. Um, so the, the top arc is our prayers are our hopes, right? The big wishes that we hope that God comes with and they're high and they're lofty. And then over time, reality just seems really far below that. I'm praying for healing and I just get a slightly better diagnosis. There's just, a, there can be a gap between what we're hoping for and what reality shows. Now, the gap between what you're hoping and praying for and reality can be called the desert. In the Old Testament, the desert was a real place and it was a real life location that God used to form his new covenant people. It was in the desert that he killed idols. It was in the desert that he taught his people how to abide and trust in him. It was in the desert that he taught them how to be dependent. If you're familiar with the Exodus narrative, there's all sorts of situations where the people of Israel thought they were screwed. They're running out of food, they're running out of water, they didn't know where to go. And God provided for them often far below what they were wanting. Now the desert is also a spiritual experience that God uses to do similar things in everyone who follows him. This is not just you. God will lead his most loved people, everyone who he loves who are following him, he will lead them through the desert. And so unanswered prayer in this sense is often where he reveals to us our idols. And it is often where he reveals how we are seeking our will but covering it up with a whole bunch of spirituality. But just like Israel in Exodus, the desert is where you feel like you're starving. It feels like you're dying of thirst. Their words in the Old Testament is, God, why don't you do something? Did you bring us out here to die? That was their experience and cry to God. They were desperate but it was in that sense of desperation that God trained them how to be dependent. Again, Jesus' words, apart from me, you can do nothing. He was helping them learn that. So this is challenging, but based on Jesus' assurances in John 15, he does want you to ask. He does want his followers to ask, to not fall into the ditch of not asking, nor into the ditch of demanding. But he is 100% creating a space for the real you to share your real heart because you are not a robot. Again, Jesus himself walked through the desert. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now there is a single path to fruitfulness. Again, John, Jesus in John 15, 
Verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you so that whatever you ask the father, notice, in my name, he may give it to you. I'm gonna read another long quote from Miller's book, so hang with me, okay? Deep down, we just don't believe that God is as generous as he keeps saying he is, which is why Jesus added the fine print here, ask in my name. Now, imagine that your prayer is a poorly dressed beggar, reeking of body odor, stumbling toward the palace of the great king. Now you have become your prayer, and as you shuffle towards the barred gate, the guards stiffen. Your smell has preceded you. You stammer out a message for the great king. I want to see the king. Your words are barely intelligible, but you whisper one final word. Jesus, I come in the name of Jesus. Now, at the name of Jesus, as if by magic, the whole palace comes alive. The guards, they snap to attention and they bow before you. The lights come on and the door flies open. You're ushered into the palace, down a long hallway, straight into the throne room of the great king, who comes running to you and wraps you in his arms. The name of Jesus gives our prayers royal access. That means they get through. So Jesus is not just the savior of our souls. He is also the savior of our prayers. So your prayers coming before the throne of God, they come as if the prayers of Jesus. Notice this, asking in Jesus's name is not another thing to get right so your prayers are perfect. It is another gift of God because your prayers are so imperfect. So our single path to fruitfulness is through Jesus and his name. We don't come with polished lives because we prayed all the right ways. We come into God's presence because Jesus gave himself so we can enter the palace and new life in his name. And as we stop depending on our self-righteousness, but we begin to depend more and more on the name of Jesus. We will grow in generosity because as we look outside of the gates, follow me, as we look outside of the gates that we just walked through in Jesus's name, we'll see a whole bunch of other needy, desperate beggars just like us. And we'll wanna go to them and say, you don't need anything to enter but the name of Christ. That is the good news that we are sent into the world is you don't need anything. You don't have to take a bath. You don't have to learn the password. Just come in the name of Jesus. John 15 verses nine and 17, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And these things I command you so that you will love one another. God loves the son, the son loves us. We extend that redeeming love to other unlovely beggars. So would you pray for them and would you go to them? My final point is that the final step of prayer is reciprocation. The love of God extends to you and I, and like our last point, it is meant to flow out of the gates to needy people. 
but his love also has one final destination. Isn't God asking, will you abide in me? Another way of saying, will you love me back? God is a person that we get to know. We depend on him. We receive love and all good things from him. Will we make time to say, I love you too? Would you pray with me? Jesus, my heart has been humbled as I have realized how good you are how little I bring to the table. And that is not self-condemnation, that is honesty, and it is gratitude. Jesus, would you teach us to pray? Uh, Would this series and sermon series on abiding not just be another interesting topic, but would it radically shift the way that we come before you, that we know you are our Father, We recognize our dysfunction, all the ways we've got the thoughts and the doctrine right, but our hearts are skewed. Help us be frank and honest with each other and with you, that we come before you with freedom, with our whole selves, that we ask readily, make us dependent on you, Father. Holy Spirit, would you wrap us up in your movement in this area, that we would become a people who individually know you, love you, and are honest with you. And communally, we begin to bring your mission out of the gates and into a world of needy beggars. Father, we pray this in your name, knowing you hear us through Christ. Amen.